You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning to everybody. Again, we're, we're continuing our series in Psalm 119 today. Um, let's begin with prayer while you're finding a Bible, and we'll, and we'll dive in. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're grateful that you brought us together again around the study of your word. Lord, we're thankful for a psalm like Psalm 119 that continues, Lord, through really the, the recesses of time to continue to speak to us and to challenge us to think about the significance of your word and the importance that it plays in our lives. I pray that you'll help us, Lord, by your spirit to believe that that's true and that you would open our hearts and our minds to it even today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you recall, I'm going to put the car a little bit in reverse today and go back to talk a little bit about some of the issues we dealt with last week and then move somewhat forward, um, even if incrementally. Uh, you recognize that Psalm 119, again, which is the longest psalm in the Bible, and I've, I've, I've come to recognize that I don't pretend any sort of idea of, um, of comprehensiveness in this study in Psalm 119. I'm, I'm going to cherry pick uh, even today as we move forward. Um, but Psalm 119 is an acrostic. In other words, it's built off of the alphabet of the Hebrew itself. And that structure of the psalm, Psalm 119, as an olive to tav, or an A to Z expression, the very structure of the psalm is indicating something about the subject matter that the psalm is addressing, namely God's Word. And it's God's Word that gives us a sense of the comprehensiveness, um, the completeness, the maturity a kind of all-encompassing framework from which reality is to be viewed. Now, and this is huge. And if we can get this on some even modest level, I, I think we really have a, a major component of what the psalm is after in its canonical or scriptural presentation. And that's this. God's word, God's instruction, his precepts, his commandments, his law, the various terms that we use to describe what God's Word is as an Old and New Testament, and I think that's a fair enough um, extension of what's going on in Psalm 119 to think of the whole of the canon. God's Word is an all-encompassing view and the way in which life is to be understood. In other words, the claims that Psalm 119 um, are making about the nature and the, and the effect and the role of God's Word, it, the way in which it works itself out in the life of faith, and the use that it has toward an understanding of reality itself is about as all-encompassing and far-reaching as one can even conceive of. In other words, Psalm 119, in conjunction with a lot of other places in the Bible as well, Psalm 119 is making a very large and grandiose claim about the character of God's Word as the basis for which we come to understand reality, in other words, how we know things and know them properly, and it's the basis of reality itself. And we'll see this language in Psalm 119 about God's Word fixed in the heavens, which comes to us in, in, a, in a kind of extended agency of God's own being into our midst, so that God's presence is extended in time and in space to His people through the vehicle of his word that's been revealed to us primarily in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Psalm 119 is, um, I, don't, I don't know what sort of metaphor to you, but, use, but there, it's, there's the smoke and the mist 
of creation. There's a kind of mythology here in Psalm 119 about how reality is to be conceived and understood that places God's word within central view on this. And with that in mind, I do think the first eight verses, the Aleph section, or, or in English alphabet terms, the A section of this poem, the first eight verses lay a foundation for a Psalm 119 in its totality. So I want to look back at it just quickly again because we started it last week, um, but I wanted to kind of dive into it again. Here you have Psalm 119 beginning with what is a, a basic feature of human existence, namely the quest for happiness. Blessed, um, happy, those who have God's smile um, lighting its, his countenance on them, those who are the object of God's blessing. What does it mean to be truly human in a fruitful way? Blessed are those, Psalm 119.1 says, are those whose way is blameless. And what is a blameless way? A blameless way is the one who walks in the law or the teachings of the Lord. They keep his testimonies. There's a blamelessness here that's attached to a form of righteousness and the righteousness is not a self-righteousness, it's a righteousness that attaches itself to something outside of the person or the individual. Again, the focus is on God's word and his precepts. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Blessed are those who keep his testimony. Now, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. They seek God with their whole heart. And that language in Psalm 119, verses 1 and 2, that ends with, with their whole heart, reminds us of the Shema of Israel back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart. There's a call here to the totality of what it is to be human. Not just our affections, which is part of that, but also our intellectual ambitions and understandings. Um, our, our will, um, our deciders, our choosers, those things that cause us to move through life and to make decisions and to adjudicate life as we move forward. All of that makes up the human person. And here you have the psalmist saying, blessed are those who seek him with their whole heart. Now notice, that, and, these were, and I didn't, didn't really lay into this last week, and I want, it's one of the reasons I wanted to return to it today. Notice here the link that you have between those who seek and walk in the way of the Lord's law, his teaching, his instruction. Again, don't think of that in a kind of reduced understanding of the do's and don'ts of the Bible, the legal side of law-keeping, although that's certainly here. But we're thinking of law in a much more expansive sense, understanding this as God's instruction, his word to his people. So you have this understanding that those who are blessed are those whose way is blameless. The only path toward a blameless mode of being are those who walk in the law or the teachings of the Lord. And notice how this is framed in the last clause here of verse 2 of Psalm 119. Those who seek Him with their whole heart. Now that's worth stopping and pausing to see the link that's made here between pursuing God's Word and pursuing God himself with their whole heart. We cannot have the one without the other. You don't get to pursue God, and by the way, I think this is a massive feature of our culture right now. Where does one find the being of God? 
Is the being of God found underneath the sort of pulsing religious impulses of my own person, my affections, my religious instincts? Is the being of God found in some kind of intellectual endeavor that's abstracted in some way from, I don't know, from reality itself? Is it a kind of nirvana experience? Is it something that's more spiritual and mystical? These are the questions of our day when people want to raise what we would consider to be metaphysical concerns, recognizing for those of us who are uncomfortable, and I know this is all of, most of us within the reach of, of this lesson here, those of us who are uncomfortable with the reduction of reality to material existence itself, we recognize that whenever you hear a piece of music or you see a piece of artwork or you hear a child laugh in pure laughter, there's a kind of intimation in these human experiences of bliss that there must be something more and transcendent out there. And for those of us who recognize that there is something transcendent in other, where does one find the other? Where does one encounter God truly? In my own experiences, in my religious instincts, and in where? And here Psalm 119 does not clear its throat. Those who want to seek God with their whole hearts are those who will seek Him in His Word. To love God and to pursue God, to be children of the burning heart, if I can quote A.W. Tozer here, to be that kind of human being is in the same breath to be the kind of person that desires God's Word more than anything else. It's more to me than life itself. That's the language here that you have in this altar. So Psalm 119 depicts for us this um, Torah piety. And again, I want to think of this more expansively. This piety as it relates to God's word, where the, the affections and the mind and the will are all engaged in their totality, recognizing that that is the object of our affection because God himself is the object of our desires. I know that I want God because only in God is there true satisfaction. And C.S. Lewis famously said that we're like children that tend to play around on the edge of a sea where we will play in a mud pile um, or go out and, and make mud cakes in the backyard when God has offered us in himself the ocean of his existence. All of us, I think, on some basic level, I'm thinking of St. Augustine here, have this desire for the infinite. Think about Augustine's often repeated phrase, our, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, which we know is ultimately a future experience, but we know that this longing that we have for something, for fullness, for the fullness of being itself, is a longing that can only find its object in God himself. And here the psalmist says, do you want God? Do you want the ocean of his existence? Do you want to bask in his glory and his otherness and his beauty, that transcendence and bliss that even in our earthly sphere can be experienced as an intimation of our future existence in him? If you want that, the psalmist says, then you will seek him with your whole heart in the word. And that's why the study of the word of God's word can never be reduced for a Christian to a merely intellectual exercise. I'm working through the power of my, of my syllogistic or, 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 or logical brain to think through philosophically in a detached way what the Bible is claiming in some sort of um, a position over against the Bible as I'm bringing it under the control of my own intellectual governance or something like that. Christians don't understand the Bible in that way. T.S. Eliot uh, famously wrote an article uh, in the 1930s, I think is when this came out, 
on the importance of the Bible in the English-speaking world, and he talked about the Bible being the most sold book within the history of, of, of a book publication in the modern world, and he said, I know that there are professors and, and classes within university settings that are teaching the Bible as literature. And so there's certainly something to be gained from that. But it needs to be understood that the Bible status as the premier book of Western civilization is not because of its literary quality. It's because of its religious dynamics. It's because the people understand the Bible as something that's unique in what it brokers to us. And this is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is telling you what the Bible brokers for you, what the Bible witnesses to, what the Bible delivers in its very material existence is the being of God. I mean, nothing bigger could be said. Blessed are those who seek Him with their whole heart. And the seeking of Him in Psalm 119 is the seeking of God's Word. So what you have here in Psalm 119 is this kind of, in the olive section here, is the beginnings of the rumblings of the heart, of the affections for God's word. You see here that there's a promise that those who seek God's word will be blessed. Those who seek after God with their whole heart, those who, those who seek God with their whole heart via his word, are those who are the blessed. They're happy. They know true human happiness. And then there's the piety of it, that they're doing this with all of their heart. That's the intensity of their religious devotion. But then you also see the plea. I love this in verse 5. Here you have the recognition in Psalm 119, verse 5, of the psalmist, whoever the psalmist is, recognizing the fact that they are human and they can't transcend their humanity. If I really want to be blessed, I'm going to be blameless. Well... I know something about myself as it pertains to blamelessness. I know something about myself as it pertains to a persistent and consistent walk in the law of the Lord. I also know something about myself in the sense of the consistency that I have in my pursuit of God as the source of ultimate enjoyment and satisfaction. I know who I am. I know my fallen character. To quote another psalm, Psalm 103, God remembers our frame. He knows that we're just dust. We're like grass that's here and then it's gone. The human heart, because of the fallenness of sin and its sin's impact on us, we know that the human heart is fickle, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, as the, as the great hymn says. And look at verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. That's, that's the humble plea. Of, the, of, the, of those who are pursuing God with their affections and their minds. Oh, that my way may be steadfast. Well, and what's, the, what's implied in this? Recognizing that left to myself, my way is not steadfast in keeping your statutes. So here's the plea that you have here. Oh, that my may, may, way may be steadfast. It's the cry of the righteous. It's the cry of the redeemed. Hans Kraus, in his commentary in this section, says this, and it's really important. But the constancy of obedience, from the standpoint of Psalm 119, is not an innate ability of the pious person. The psalmist instead prays for the right attitude toward God's ordinances, and with a thankful heart, wants to be instructed. So, so if I can construct this for us on some level of what we're getting here in the first bit of Psalm 119. Psalm 119 lays a massive claim 
about the significance and the role that God's word plays in our existence as those who are followers of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Namely, those who want to know the smiling face of God, think the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, grant you his peace. Those who want to know the full impact of the ironic blessing in their daily existence, the blessed ones, are those who pursue after God's word, and in pursuing after God's word, they are pursuing after God himself. That's, that's the idea, that's the truth that's being presented here about the way in which we view and understand the world, the church, and our own individual lives. Everything must be drawn to God through the vehicle of his word. But there's also a recognition here from the pious, from the righteous, from those who yearn to be obedient, knowing that the path of obedience is the path toward genuine human happiness. This is the way, says the Lord, walk ye in it, Deuteronomy. We've read enough of Israel's history, we've read enough of the history of the church, and we know enough about our own lives to know that we don't have the innate ability within our own human framework to walk in the path that's laid out before us in Psalm 119, verses 1 through 2. So what's the proper prayer in the middle of this? A prayer of humility. Oh Lord, give me the right attitude toward your word. Think of this, what's the right attitude? The right attitude toward God's word is this, I think, and I'm stealing here from St. Augustine and Thomas Cranmer. The right attitude towards God's word is this, I, I want to believe, oh God, by the effective power of your spirit, that what you have to say in your word from in the Old and the New Testaments as they witness to Jesus, what you have to say in your word is better than the best things that I can think of in any of the philosophical or political viewpoints or cultural viewpoints that I can muster or think up with the best of my intellectual or imaginative abilities. What your word says is better. That's the right attitude toward God's ordinances. And there's also, I think, that you have here within, with the language of Psalm 119. Now, I would encourage you to do this. Open Psalm 119, kind of work through it, and uh, underline, if, if you do that in your Bibles, or, or put a little asterisk or a little line next to every time you read the word delight in Psalm 119. Oh, how I delight in your word. How I find pleasure in your word. There's a sense in which the psalmist here has a heart that's overflowing, that's bubbling with gratitude and thankfulness to God's word. There's even a, a portion here in Psalm 119 where the psalmist says, I extend my hands out. I, I lift my hands in praise before your commandments. I mean, that, that's the kind of language that would make some of us step back and say, hold on, that's, that kind of posture is, is reserved for God himself. But remember, the nature of God's word in the Bible is such that to have God, to truly worship God, necessitates the primacy of his word in shaping our thoughts and our prayers and our attitudes toward, toward God and our understanding of who he is. So there's a thankful heart that yearns to be instructed. I want to know what your word says. So with that laid out, I want to just, I'm cherry picking here, all right? I recognize this is a long song. But if you have your Bibles, turn to the hey section, the H section, we would say in our, in our English alphabets, I guess, verse 33. And I want you to hear the language here of the psalmist. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. 
Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Would you hear these invocations toward God himself, these prayers, and the nature of the imperatives that the psalmist is giving to God in prayer? Listen to them. Teach me. Give me understanding. Lead me. Incline my heart. I love the language here of these four verses in, in uh, Psalm 119, 33 through 36, because the, again, they indicate the posture of the faithful reader of the Bible. Now, I'm, I'm not sure you thought of it this way, but I, I, and I'm kind of thinking about this in some sense out loud. The Bible anticipates, and again, kind of put some flesh on this here, the Bible anticipates a certain kind of reader. Um, those within certain theological schools will call this uh, the implied reader of the Bible. In other words, the Bible expects to be read by a certain kind of person. This is interesting. And I think these four verses here in Psalm 119 lay out for us the kind of person that the Bible is anticipating as a faithful reader. What does it mean to be a faithful reader of God's Word? It's the person that comes to God's Word in humility and a thankful heart and says, teach me. I don't have the resources within myself to figure all of this out. We know that the Holy Spirit's chief office, think the farewell discourse in John, the Holy Spirit's chief office is to teach His people, to bring to memory that which God has said. And we know that the church is the place where the Holy Spirit works those dynamics out. So here you have the faithful crying out to the Lord, be my teacher. Um, in his commentary on the book of Acts, John Calvin talks about the encounter that the Ethiopian eunuch has with Philip in the middle of that really fascinating encounter in Acts 8, where the Holy Spirit propels Philip to go to the Ethiopian eunuch, who is obviously a wealthy man of some means. He has his own scroll He's reading a Septuagint or Greek version of Isaiah. Philip finds him reading Isaiah, happens to be Isaiah 53, and Philip asks the great question. It's the teacher's question. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you get what's going on with this book that you've purchased? And the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, how can I unless someone teaches me? And in his commentary on Acts, John Calvin says, when the eunuch utters those words out of his mouth, he proves himself to be, and I love this turn of phrase, a Christian scholar. Because the Christian scholar doesn't say, I'm here to tell you. The Christian scholar, the reader of God's word, is the one who says, how can I understand unless someone outside of myself teaches me? I need to be taught. I think about this as a parent, frankly, in deep ways a lot. Um, I feel the burden of this. Um, think about the book of Proverbs. What, what's one of the key, the, the key or chief character traits of the wise young man in the book of Proverbs? It's the young man or the young woman who is teachable. The, the, the ability to move from simplicity to wisdom. The fool is unteachable. The fool is the one that has all the answers. 
The fool is the one whose mind and thought processes are already sealed off and the learning activity is done. Now all we do is circle the wagons and defend our positions. That's the fool according to Proverbs. The wise man, the wise young man, the wise young woman is the person that's in a posture like a sponge that's looking to God and God's word and saying, teach me. I want to know. I want to understand. I recognize that, that my intellectual capacities, my affectionate capacities aren't enough on their own. I need to be taught. I need to be shaped. I need to be framed by something outside of myself. Teach me, O Lord, your statutes. And look at, look at the next verse, the third four. Teach me and then give me understanding. How can I really know what's going on, O Lord, unless you open my mind? This is a classic claim of Christian theology. Think Anselm in the medieval period, who placed belief before knowledge on a sort of logical unfolding of how we come to know. It's not, I know, then I believe. It's, I believe in order that I might know. Belief is properly basic. And what is belief? Well, belief is demonstrated here in Psalm 119 and verse 33. Teach me. That is the cry of faith. But that's a recognition that I believe that all truth is found in God's being, revealed in Jesus, and outpoured by the Holy Spirit. I believe that to be true. And for me to understand it requires for God to do a work on me. Teach me and give me understanding. Open my mind and my heart so that I may behold the wonders out of your law. And then to observe it with my whole heart. Listen how the psalmist continues. Lead me, verse 35, in the path of your commandment. Lead me in this way and not to selfish gain. And, and look at verse 40 here. Um, behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Again, you have that language of the affections of desire. Let me long for your word. And what do you have here in verse 37? I'll look at verse 37, then we'll probably wrap it up. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Worthless things, by the way, is often a catchphrase in the Old Testament for idols. For those things that we put up in the place of God, thinking that the creaturely gift itself, whatever it is, can be the end and be the ultimate point of my satisfaction. It's when we take good things and we make them ultimate things that lead us ultimately to a point of internal a fracture and brokenness. And here you have the psalmist saying, I know that my disposition is to move toward worthless things. My eyes will wander toward that and to look at the creaturely world around me and say, that's what's going to make me happy. You are my ultimate God. And here the psalmist says the only way for us to avoid that kind of uh, mode of being to move toward worthless things, toward idolatry, is for God to teach us, to help us to understand, and for him to lead us in his word so that his word itself continually draws us into God, into God's very being. Well, we'll do some more next week. I'm going to wrap it up here. But what you sense, I think, in Psalm 119, even in these few verses here that we looked at in the hay section or the H section, are the stakes that are involved with what the psalmist is talking about. This is not mere religious activity that we do on Sunday morning together when we, come, when we, when, when we do church. The psalmist here is talking about something that's all-encompassing. It's a view on life. It's a way in which we think through 
the political and social dynamics of our moment. It's the way in which we understand our family dynamics. It's the way in which we understand, and the list goes on and on, every facet of our being here, Psalm 119 is telling us, if left to ourselves, will move toward worthless things. I would move toward, I do it all the time. And the gift of repentance that God gives us in his son, who kept the law for us, he fulfilled it in himself. Promise in Jesus is that it's his word that will draw us back again and again to the word who is Jesus, the only means of our knowing the Father. And what the world needs now, right? What we need now, what I need now, is God. And here Psalm 119 says, if you want God, you only get God through his word, the way in which God reveals himself in Jesus, witnessed to in the scriptures and effectively taught in our lives um, by the Holy Spirit. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul, I think he must have read Psalm 119 the night before, I'm guessing here, of course. He knew, he knew Psalm 119 by heart. But the reason why Paul said, all scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's the word of God that has the ability to lead and to shape and to correct us when we go off the path to lead us back again toward, um, toward God himself. So, Father, uh, give us a heart um, for your word. Teach us, give us understanding, lead us, Lord, not just so that we can win arguments or, or best our opponents or any of those kinds of uh, personal kingdom-building activities. But, Lord, let us yearn for your word because we yearn for life itself, for Jesus. And you tell us, Jesus, that to know you, Jesus, is to have eternal life. Let us understand the stakes and how high they are as, as, a, as it applies to your word and as the way in which you frame your word for us in Psalm 119. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.